Yes, there has been a lot of resistance because change is fun when you are the one to lead it. Change is not fun when you are the one who is being changed. Yeah. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new episode of VEU Executive Academy podcast, where we give you exclusive insights from some of the brightest leaders today who all have one thing in common. They are or were students of our MBA programs. I'm Chadomir Pushica, your host, and it is my task to ask the right questions so that you can learn more about the person, their industry, their mindset, and how they manage to bring positive change to businesses and their communities. It is my absolute pleasure and privilege to host Rita Yakush on today's VEU Executive Academy podcast. She's an excellent example of how her business studies and her executive MBA helped her unlock promotions and rise to the top in business. Having studied law at the University of Vienna and then working in banking in Austria and several European countries, Rita wanted to strengthen her practical business know-how with a sound management education and deepen her multinational exposure, expand her network, and improve her skills as a business leader. Slightly more than two years ago, Rita was promoted to the role of managing director for a real estate service group belonging to a leading Austrian bank, Hypo Noe. She took over several companies with five business lines in Austria and CEE, which had struggled before and were partially loss-making. Within a very short time, she successfully restructured the whole segment. Now she has embraced new challenges, leading hypo NOEs and organic growth in the bank's core business fields. There is plenty you can learn from listening to this episode, so let's jump straight in. Hello, Rita, and welcome to the show. Hello, Chedomir. It's really a, a pleasure uh, to be here, and thank you for having me here. So I have so many questions for you today, but I think that your personal example of how the MBA changed your life and helped your career is something that every MBA student at VEU Executive Academy today and every prospective MBA student would love to hear about. So that is going to be my first question. What was one major takeaway from your MBA program and how has it changed your approach to business and or life? And did you always want to become a managing director? Well, one thing is you need to know I'm a lawyer by training and also I have been working in various business fields in M&A, in integration, in leading subsidiaries, etc. before I, I had the stamp of being a lawyer on my forehead. And I think the NBA somehow showed also to my managers and my board members that were new at the moment when I was offered this opportunity that I was also willing to do something else than legal work. And this helped me to get this role as a managing director, leading a couple of companies which were partly loss-making and being offered this role to change them, to reorganize them and to, to bring them to the profit zone. So I think for me personally, it just opened the, the possibilities to, to do really general management roles as well. The second thing, this is a... A very particular takeaway from my MBA, you know, I think the U Executive Academy and the Carlson School did a very good job in how they composed my MBA group, but I think they do it with all the MBA groups of the, of the Gamba program, which is very diversely set up in terms of nationalities, but also in terms of professional and educational backgrounds of the people. Unfortunately, not so much in terms of gender. I mean, we were 45 and out of these 45, only there were seven women. But I think also this is going to improve. 
And my takeaway is that we tackled the problems in the cases and in the in the master thesis and so on with very heterogeneous and diverse groups of people who all of them brought in different aspects and different opinions. This really brought us to better decisions and better results. And I think this is a takeaway you can bring to company life. If a company or, or a department or whatsoever is diversely set up, you improve the results because you get more opinions and, and you see the problem from different sides. I absolutely agree with what you said, and that's what, what I also noticed in our class. And we have to say really congratulations to the dean, to the university, to all the staff for really doing a, an excellent job of creating such diverse groups. And now you mentioned that you had a stamp of a lawyer on your forehead practically. And so how did that disappear with uh, when you took over general management? Was it difficult for you or and for others also to accept you in your new role? The really new thing was that I had a general P&L responsibility. Yeah? And I did very well. At the end, at the beginning, of course, I was under close investigation if it's going well. But at the end, we managed to bring all the companies to the profit zone. So I took the problem from two sides. What do we do in the companies? And what, what do we do with the companies? Yeah, And in the companies, we did cost cutting. We optimized the structures. We, we tried to improve the businesses which were there and to develop new business lines. And with the companies, and this was the main problem why these companies were part loss making this was the ownership structure we had real estate services companies belonging fully belonging to a banking group and you may know that from the financial crisis in 2008 2009 the regulations being put on banks they increased substantially and when you have as a bank fully consolidated subsidiaries many of these regulations also need to apply to these companies no matter if they are in the banking sector or not. So we had companies in asset management, real estate asset management, facility services, whatever, project development, and they had to apply banking rules, which can only be cumbersome, which is costly, which is something their peers in the industry don't have. So one of the major success factors was to either completely selling these companies or at least deconsolidating them, meaning selling the majority of the stakes. So on the one side, we brought them internally to the profit zone by different measures, but also we brought them out of the consolidation of the banking, fully consolidation circle, and which helped them also de to develop. So I think coming back to what, what did this job to my lawyer stamp, I think it brought me much more in the general management role. Yeah, I had also commercial roles before, but this uh, this gave me the opportunity to, to, to really do general management from different perspectives. I understand. And when you decided that you had to deconsolidate the companies and sell either the majority stake or the entire stake that banks had in those companies, who did you go to? Were these companies that were listed on the stock exchange? No, no, it is tiny. were tiny ones compared to. Okay. No, no, it was. They were fully. They were fully owned subsidiaries of the bank. So I went to the management board of the bank, respectively, for the bigger ones to the supervisory board. So the management board went to the supervisory board. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Like just following the governance structure. 
So your current management span is around 320 FTEs or full-time equivalents. This was the management span at the beginning when I took over the bunch of companies. This were So these were all the companies together in Austria and a couple of CE countries. Mm-hmm. But I brought them closely to zero because we deconsolidated. Okay, so how many FTEs do you uh, supervise now? Closely to zero, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yes, I've done the job and I'm building up a new one right now. Excellent. And which one is that? I'm developing the business of the bank in the in the core fields, which we decided to be the core of the strategy, in order to see if we can anorganically grow. Yeah. So to identify possibilities for acquisitions, for strategic partnerships, corporations in the market, for real estate financing, for public finance, and also in the in the private business for private persons like doctors, yeah, for example. So the point is that we have a focused strategy in the banking group, putting away all these things which are not in our core business. So this was my last job to really deconsolidate not the core business at the end. But now it's the strategy to deepen the core strategy to find also anorganic growth opportunities on the market to deepen this strategy. Okay, so that is something that uh, like the central theme in your CV also is leading change. So you're practically uh, dealing with change and changing the companies, uh, restructuring. And how come, how did you end up uh, doing all this? You're right. I mean, leading change is really somehow the core theme in my in my business life. It somehow... I think it somehow was by coincidence and at the end also good luck because it's really fun leading change. I was about 30 when I got the chance to move to Bulgaria from an Austrian bank. Bank Austria at that time was my employer to integrate and merge two subsidiary banks in Bulgaria. And I was really challenged by this position because it was my first leading role from scratch. I had a team of more than 200 people that time. And I was thrilled by the results because we really, my team and I, we could contribute to forming one of the most successful banks in Bulgaria. And this was a very nice success story for my my first leading role. That's excellent. So now that you mentioned Bulgaria, that's one of your international experiences. But you also had, during your studies, you had four different countries like international residencies, and you worked in many other different countries. So do you recall now, speaking of different cultures and different countries, any point where these cultural differences may have been the reason for misunderstanding and may have created a conflict? And what did you do about it? Yeah. Well, I think on the one side, it's good that you mentioned the MBA, because at the MBA, I got to understand from an academic point of view, why different cultures and why managing different cultures is so important for success in international business. I mean, it's worth reading Hofstede on cultural differences in this respect. But from the practical point of view, you live in Italy, right? Yes, that's true. So, so I can I can give you an, an example of my time in Italy. I was then in the managing committee of Unicredit Global Leasing, which was at that time the largest leasing group in Europe. 
And we were a management committee composed of, let's say, 60% Italians and 40% Germans and Austrians. And, and the Germans and Austrians, I think the Germans even more than the Austrians, but also the Austrians, they are used to, to coming into meetings and really discussing also critical points in the meeting. Yeah, like trying to find a solution in the meeting. Maybe there is, of course, the, the rule that is, if it's very critical, you talk in advance to some people to see if there is uh, you can liaise and, and how is the mood. But in general, it, you discuss the things in the meeting. In Italy, I understood that you don't tackle the things so much from the content point of view at the first time. But you need to find a relationship to the people. Yeah. So I, I call it, it's important to go for a coffee before and, and discuss things on an informal point of view and get a relationship to the others until you can really discuss the things from the content point of view in the meeting. Because I understood this by far too late and, and some of the other Germans and Austrians as well, this led to conflicts. And I think when we found out that it's important to build up this relationship first, which is much more important in the Italian culture than many other things, then it worked well. <laughs> this is really funny because we are so close. Let's say um, from Serbia and Italy, we, we share so many of the same things. And I was also, how to say, fooled to think that everything is the same. But yeah. those little subtle things, as you mentioned, they really make all the difference. <laughs> and this is an excellent, excellent example. So thank you. Thank you for that. So now I want to ask you, speaking about uh, managing companies and the restructuring and everything, you, you have to deal with people because people are the essence of business as well as the structures. So... In supervising so many people, you probably found a mismatch between people's skills and job requirements. How did you deal with that? And how did you go about developing people? Did you bring in new people or, or you invested into developing the existing staff? That's a really good question. I had the honor and the pleasure to lead various teams in my career so far, yeah? And, and this is always a question how you manage people and how you develop people. And I think you cannot manage every person, every direct report in absolutely the same way because people have different characters. They have different approaches to work and a different skill set. And I think a very important knowledge set of a, of a leader, of a manager, is to understand these skill sets and somehow the personalities of the people. And what I always tried, it's not always possible, but it's possible to a large extent, that to you compose the team in a way that give the tasks to the people which somehow correspond to their strengths, yeah? so that you support the strengths of the people and not the weaknesses. Yeah, So you, you try to put tasks to those people who have a strength for it. Let me give you an example. If you want like a detailed analysis of some numbers, yeah, you better give it to a person who is good in Excel and who loves to an analyze numbers and dig deeply and so on, than to a person who is there and tries to sell and is talkative and outgoing and so on. Yeah, To this person, you better give selling tasks or presentation tasks or whatsoever. And I think this is, this is the main success to really give those tasks to those people who have the, their strengths in exactly this area. 
And now is the, the interesting question for me. How do you understand who has a particular skill set? Do you ask the, the HR or do you have some period of adaptation where you observe people or how do you go about that? No, you don't ask the HR. I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think this is. I, I think this would be unfair because how can the HR know every person in a company in such detail? Yeah, True. maybe they have some idea, and you maybe liaise with the HR. Yeah, of course. But at the first time, you, you it takes some time. Yeah, you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two opportunities. Either you take over a team of people. And they have already tasks and, and roles, yeah. Then you work with them in these respective roles and see how it goes on. If it goes on well, then give a tick on it and say, let's go on. If it doesn't go well, you have to, to sit there and see how you can somehow reorganize your team that really tasks are allocated to those people who have the strength there. And most of the cases, this works quite well. Sometimes it doesn't. Then you either have to also change the people Mm-hmm. For somebody else, or but in general, I think this is this is an approach which works in in most of the teams where you have the chance to let's say maneuver a bit, yeah, to to shift roles and responsibilities. Okay, so practically, when we're talking about change now and developing the skills of existing people, is there or has there been a lot of resistance? Or did it go smoothly most of the time? Yes, there has been a lot of resistance because change is fun when you are the one to lead it. Change is not fun when you are the one who is being changed. Yeah. Oh, okay. Is, that's, uh, that's nice. <laughs> this, is definitely, this is definitely so. So I had one of the companies which at the end we sold the majority was a company in construction management. And they were in the in the Hypo Niederösterreich group for about 30 years. So they felt very close to the company, to the structure, everything. And when I told them that we will have to change something in the ownership structure, then they will move out, at least from a majority stake to another real estate group. There was a lot, a lot of opposition and people were really, the atmosphere was icy sometimes. Yeah. The only thing you can do is to very openly communicate why you have to do this, why this will be for the better. And at the end, it worked out. And just yesterday, I was in their new offices visiting them and it somehow was the feeling that I, I, I breathed a a baby which is now starting to fly because they are developing, they are getting new business, they have new offices, they hired people. So the decision was absolutely right and the people were happy and the atmosphere changed. But as a manager, you have to somehow survive also these icy situations. You have to try to be as open as you can. Whenever you there is a decision you can communicate, communicate it. And tell it like 10 times because it takes time until people really hear the message. One time is not enough. Repeat it. And you can never communicate too much in change situations. This is the main secret, I think. Oh, that's that's a very important insight. And now speaking about decisions, what was the most painful decision that you had to make? And are you happy with the result? What would you have done differently? 
I think this was also the same company, yeah, because of this long bondage. It was very painful when we found out that the main reason for the low performance is the ownership structure, not the bad performance of the company itself. Mm-hmm. To really tell the people that they are not going to be longer really members of the Hypo group, that they will be moved to another group. This was painful. I think I could have communicated even more, yeah, because I know it, I communicate a lot. But you should do it even more. Now, speaking back to the people and uh, going back to talents, when I ask you one question, like if there is the most talented high potential in your company, what three pieces of advice would you give him or her to live a successful and fulfilling life? (laughs) (laughs) This is a tricky one. I would say do things you like. Yeah, because we all spend so much time in our jobs. So if you do something which you don't like, it's a waste of a lifetime. So work in a job you like, Hmm. this I would say. Try to be persistent in reaching your results. So work hard and really try to achieve your results. And always work in a way that you can get up in the morning and look into the mirror and say, yes, I'm doing right. I'm honest and I'm doing the things correctly and I'm not harming anybody. Yeah. So I'm not a liar. I'm really doing an honest job because I think you can achieve all the roles and you you don't have to be a nasty person. You can achieve even high managing roles with being honest and a fair player. So I think these are the three things. Thank you. This is more or less like the last one is like Google's motto, don't do evil things or don't do evil, something like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I think it it really it throws back at some point in time. Yes. And so how does Rita celebrate her successes? <laughs> <laughs> I think when you really have a success, the immediate feeling thereafter is emptiness. Yeah, because you have achieved a goal it's it's great but then i think you you need some time to breathe so in particular in this kind of project business yeah when you when you achieve targets and you sold the company you bought a company you merged two companies whatsoever then there is the the signature under the contract or or some let's say celebration party that you that you merged it all, all these things which put a milestone in into your business life you celebrate it but the next moment is more emptiness and you have to to somehow breathe and 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 really think how it's going on so i think the celebration is not immediately it's, you need some time to understand it, that this, is, this was a milestone and, and there will come the next task. Do you have any routine or have you developed any routine over the years how to deal with successes because you've succeeded in so many things? So do you, do you actually practice something like treating yourself to your perfect restaurant or something like that or going on a trip? No, not really. Not really. I like it. Maybe I go for dinner with my team or with my partner, my family, whatsoever. But I don't have a routine to to celebrate successes. I also don't have routine to deal with problems. I mean, there I go running, but I also go running when I have a success. (laughs) So this is my routine. Yeah. (laughs) Well, one more thing before we wrap up and. um, We have to touch upon this crisis which is upon us, and that's COVID-19. And I want to ask you, 
now in the time when everybody is worried about the property loans, real estate value, and generally the future, what would you identify as the main direction in which your sector is moving? And what are the key questions you're asking yourselves nowadays? Like, what is the next big thing, the major challenge? So my sector is banking and is banking very much in real estate financing, public finance, these directions, yeah? Mm -hmm. So I think the next thing will be digitalization to a large extent. So we will see a lot of processes and a lot of parts in the banking business much more digitalized. This will be the next step. But I think also that in the complex things, there will still be the advisory business important because 